Welcome in to another episode of Home Field Advantage. Hope you're all having a great week wherever you may be listening or watching this podcast across our great country or our great land. My name is Will Highland. It is November 1st, 2023, All Saints Day and the day after Halloween. I don't know about you all, but I cannot believe it is November 1st. If you're listening to this, it's even later. It's November 2nd. Uh, I'm recording on November 1st. 2023 has been, and we say this every year, so it's a little bit of a cliche, but really 2023 has been the year that never really was because it's just gone by so fast. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that we're already in November. Pretty soon we'll be doing our year in review show in December for the holidays. So crazy to think that we've gotten this far. I appreciate all of you listening to us this year as we head into the home stretch. couple things I want to get to today. Supposed to be a hockey show with Diesel tonight. We were supposed to do Odd Man Rush. Um, but instead, I'm coming to you now in the normal home field advantage feed on a Thursday. But that said, I do want to start on the ice. It's a handful of hockey-related stories I want to get to that I think are pertinent and are a little um, bit troublesome. You know, there's one in particular, which we'll get to, um, of course. But first, I want to start with some breaking news Um, And that's a report, in fact, speaking of Diesel, that he just shared with me. I'm sure it's something we'll discuss on our next episode of Odd Man Rush. But there's a report that the Montreal Canadiens are selling off stake in their franchise. In particular, um, a minority stake uh, recorded at $2.5 billion. So... That's just a minority stake. If you think of, so it has to be less than 50% to be considered a minority stake. So the franchise is at least worth $5 billion based on this evaluation. Um, but in fact, it's going to be more because, and I'm, I'm, again, this is hot off the press from ESPN. Um, it says, quote, Michael Andelauer, who bought the Ottawa Senators for $950 million in September, sold his 10% minority interest in the Montreal Canadiens at a record $2.5 billion enterprise value, Sportico reported on Wednesday. The Molson family must be the beer people. The Molson family, which owns a controlling stake in Montreal, exercised their option of the first right to buy Ann Lauer's stake. Chances are Ann Lauer had to sell his stake in Montreal um, within a certain amount of time because he was the senator's owner. I'm not going to read the rest of this um, just because it's a wicked long article. I encourage you to read it more. Um, But chances are that's part of the agreement because you can't, you know, you can't have ownership in more than one uh, franchise at a time, but that's huge news, right? Like the, the relationship between financial investors and sports franchises continue to balloon and balloon and balloon. Um, and you're having more people enter this world. Um, you know, as recently as the Washington commanders in the NFL getting a new owner, um, there's obviously the talk about uh, Americans getting into 
association football around the world and all kinds of things, especially if you think about um, Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds over in Wales. So people are buying up sports franchises at an exorbitant amount um, and at a rapid rate. So this comes as no surprise, but that's just some breaking news. You figured he would have to sell his stake in the Canadiens. But it's, as I said, it's going to end up being – it's a five, $5 billion evaluation if he's talking about 49%. Thing is, he's talking about 10%. So <laughs> that's an evaluation of you know $25 uh, billion, which is unbelievable. Um, but that's what happens when you have a franchise with the brand equity that Montreal has. All right, more hockey news. Charlie McAvoy yesterday suspended four games by the NHL for his hit um, on, oh gosh, now I forget who it was on. Was it, was it, um, oh, it was on the Florida Panthers player. It was on the tip of my tongue. Was it Brandon Montour? Maybe. I can't remember. I really should remember that. Anyway, Charlie McAvoy late in the game on Tuesday, excuse me, on Monday, hits whoever on Florida late. Very dirty hit. Um, it's usually weird because it's not part of McAvoy's game. Um, he's not a dirty player, I don't think. He had been um, He had been reprimanded once by the league. I think he was suspended a game back in the 2019 playoffs for a hit on Columbus's Josh Anderson. But it's not a part of his game. He's not really a dirty player. Of course, Paul Maurice was going to lobby the league, as he did, um, but even so, it was something that uh, McAvoy deserved. I thought it would have been two or three. I didn't know about his previous history. So I guess four um, is what it is. Look, um, I guessed two, but I guess if you factor in his history, having a having a fourth game makes sense. It's really going to hurt the Bruins. They're already without Lucic. Um, they're without Grizzlick, and now they're without McAvoy. So those are three of their starters, um, I would say. Well, maybe not Lucic because he's a third or fourth line guy, but on defense, that's your top pair right away. Uh, Lucic is going to be on LTIR, but either way, you lose a little bit of thump without McAvoy and Lucic in the lineup, and they're going to need it. They're playing Detroit again. That was a really, um, that's a really strong team. Um, and that was a tight game despite the score the other day with Detroit. They're also going to play Dallas and Toronto. Right, so you get your first taste of the Maple Leafs in the building on Thursday night. Um, and if you're listening to this uh, on Thursday, it's tonight, right? Like they're playing Toronto tonight. And, you know, anytime Toronto comes to TD Garden, it's a big deal. I'm Last year's games were um, insane. Uh, but I think... I think it's really going to hurt the Bruins, right? They get off to this great start. They're 7-0-1, 8-0-1, whatever it is. And part of the reason they're off to this good start is their penalty kill has been unbelievable. And they've benefited a ton from Charlie McAvoy and Matt Grizzlick playing lockdown defense pretty much all the time. You know, it's really easy for Linus Ulmark and Jeremy Swayman, so to speak, Obviously, they're both playing out of their minds too, but it's even easier when you have a lockdown decor and a uh, you know historic penalty kill for this early in the season. Um, so that that's where 
that's where this Bruins team is going to have to rebound and rely on some young guys like Mason Lorai who are going to come up uh, and join the fold. All right, the last piece of hockey news uh, before we move on to the NFL and Major League Baseball is some, unfortunately, some sad news. So Adam Johnson, all right, a 29-year-old Minnesota native who had played parts of seasons in the NHL with the Pittsburgh Penguins, played at University of Minnesota Duluth, um, really, you know, bright young player, but had gone over to England, um, you know, to get a shot at playing more often. Uh, He was playing... I believe uh, for Nottingham, if I am uh, if I am uh, remembering correctly, and unfortunately he had a horrible uh, incident occur that resulted in his death. Um, it's a very extremely tragic situation um, for for he and his family, and for the the whole league and for the hockey world. Um, this has happened at times throughout the history of the sport. Um, where there's really freak accidents. I remember there was one at BU several years ago, um, maybe before he was even born. It could have been longer ago. Um, there was obviously in Maine, we had the incident with Travis Roy. I shouldn't say in Maine, uh, but Travis Roy was uh, severely injured and you know it, it hurt his mobility for the rest of his life. Um, but it's it's actually really rare that this stuff happens. Um Considering how dangerous of a sport hockey is, I mean, if you think about it, you're running around, skating around with knives attached to your feet and and sticks in your hands and you're on ice and there's boards and glass and pucks that are hard and travel fast. Obviously, I'm not minimizing any of this by saying it's rare. It is an extraordinarily uh, tragic situation. Uh, that that was happening over there in Sheffield, England. Um, but as a result, there have been calls for North American leagues to follow suit in England and now require, as England will um, in their league, uh, net guards. And I, I would be on board with that. Uh, you know, it's crazy to think that this sport was played even in my dad's and grandparents' lifetime where goalies didn't, wear much more than one mask and nobody wore helmets. I mean, that famous picture of Bobby Orr, he's not even wearing a helmet and he's flying across the ice. So I think it's long due that this happened. Um, excuse me, not that this, not, you know what I mean? Not that the incident happened, but that it was required. Um, I just wish it didn't have, take such a tragic situation for it to happen. Um, I wish people had been a little bit more proactive Unfortunately, much like with any sport, the safety measures are never going to 100% mitigate tragic situations like this. But I hope for the sake of future players and their safety, there's some way to uh, there's some way to mitigate this by doing that. I am for it. I was for it when baseball brought in the screens. A lot of people back then, and this wasn't even that long ago, 10 years ago, they didn't like the um, they didn't like the idea of having nets. In foul territory, they thought it would be a hindrance on the game. It's not. Um, it does a lot for fan safety. Um, there's a reason why they have um, all these safety measures in place for fans. Um, but I really think they should continue to do what they can for the players. And that goes across all sports. But notably ones like hockey, baseball, um, and and football, where there's intense risk involved um, in 
in just being a spectator and being a participant. Um, and unfortunately, for this situation with with Adam Johnson, it resulted in a in a uh, loss of life. Um, I'm not going to read the details or describe the video or anything. There's obviously a criminal aspect to this as well um, with the person who was uh, who was involved in the hit as well. I believe it was uh, Matt Petgrave is his name. Uh, I'm not going to comment further on that. I don't know a whole lot about the situation beyond the headlines and the articles that I've read on this side of the pond. Um, and I'm not going to speak to an ongoing <laughs> criminal investigation uh, regarding something so delicate and uh, recent. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll just mention here as I'm reading from the Wikipedia write-up is that in response to his death, the EIHL, which is the English Ice Hockey League, suspended all games scheduled for that day in numerous leagues and teams worldwide um, alongside various politicians from Nottingham, issued statements mourning his death and held various pregame ceremonies in his honor. Um, there was also a fan fundraising event. Um, and there was some vigils that took place. Um, but but the most um, impactful thing I would say from a policy standpoint is that the EIHL um, in the EIHA, which is the governing body of ice hockey in England and Wales, um, mandated that all of its uh, players use net guards. And I think it's something that our leagues in North America should follow suit as well. Um, the more we can make sports safer, the better. Um, and I just want to reiterate again, when I said it had come due, I meant it had come due that there was change. Certainly. Um, I would never hope that there would be something like this to have to happen in order to institute that change. All right, moving on here, um, as unfortunate as it is uh, to the NFL. Now, yesterday was the NFL trade deadline. A lot of people had talked about the Patriots. I think if Kendrick Bourne wasn't hurt, I believe he would have been traded. Um, I, I hold that belief, but Kendrick Bourne tore his ACL in Sunday's game, so he was not dealt. So New England didn't make a move, but some other teams made a move. And most notably, actually, the Las Vegas Raiders fired head coach Josh McDaniels and um, general manager Dave Ziegler, both of which were former New England executives. And of course, uh, Josh McDaniels was the offensive coordinator in New England for such a long time. Now, here's the thing with Josh McDaniels, okay? Uh, it's going to be hard for me to make fun of his Raiders career as a Patriots fan, because he didn't win that many games with the Las Vegas Raiders. I think he might have won nine or 10 total, but two of them were against the Patriots. All right. Um, and at least last year's game against the Patriots cost the play Patriots a playoff spot. So I, I'm, you know, they could have won that game or, you know, talk about the officiating, talking about the stupid lateral, all that stuff. But Josh McDaniels still beat the Pats twice, and he also beat the Pats back in 09 when he was uh, a Denver head coach. So as often as I would like to make fun of Josh McDaniels' head coaching career, it's pretty hard to do that when he's 3-0 and against the Patriots as a head coach. And he's a guy who hasn't won many games as a head coach. But I will speak to this. The, the Raiders have no plan. You know, I talk all the time about the Red Sox not having a plan. The, the Raiders have no plan. 
Raiders don't know what they're doing. They consistently struggle to have a organization that is not dysfunctional. Um, I just hope the Patriots never get to that point. Patriots, of course, had their 20-year run and haven't looked great since, but at least you can look back and say that the Kraft operation for the last 30-plus years has been sound. The Davis family in recent years, I, I don't really know what they're doing. And, you know, they had the whole Gruden thing. All right, now you've got the, they had their guy, their interim coach, but they didn't want him after making the playoffs, which didn't make sense. I forget that gentleman's name, but he took over when they fired Gruden. And then the Raiders made the playoffs. And then after that, they moved on and got McDaniels. That didn't really make sense. And so I, I will say that. I'll also say that Josh McDaniels might be running out of opportunities to be a head coach. I don't think he'll get another opportunity. His Denver experiment failed miserably. He ended up going to the St. Louis Rams, which at the time were a really irrelevant franchise afterward. He eventually resurrected his career with Tom Brady as his quarterback in New England again. And then after that, he had the whole debacle with the Indianapolis Colts where he pulled out at the 11th hour. And then in 2021, as I said, he joined, uh, excuse me, after the 2021 season, he joined the Las Vegas Raiders, a six-year deal, didn't make it through a second year. So he's had three opportunities, two of which he's blown as a coach, not lasting longer than two years. And the third opportunity he bowed out of at the last minute, um, you know, like a prom date who, you know, got cold feet. So with Josh McDaniels, I'm not sure he's going to get another chance. I'm not sure you can expect another chance. He might have to come back to New England to resurrect his career, but that's going to be pretty bad considering Bill O'Brien's here to be the head, uh, be the offensive coordinator for Jim Slip and possibly the head coach in the future. And I wouldn't touch Josh McDaniels with a 10-foot pole right now. As much as I like the guy, and I think he had a huge role in Mac Jones' his, uh, rookie year, and trust me, you guys know this as a listener, I'm a Mac guy. I think <laughs> if only the Raiders could have fired Josh McDaniels last year at this time, maybe the Patriots could have salvaged their season, um, and maybe they wouldn't have needed to change schemes three times for Mac Jones. So we'll see what happens with Josh McDaniels. I don't think there's a spot for him in New England right now. Think about it. You've got, I think Joe Judge is still employed. Gerard Mayo is still employed. Bill O'Brien is still employed. Bill Belichick is leading the charge, not to mention his kid, Steve. So now you've got Steve Belichick, Bill Belichick, Gerard Mayo, Bill O'Brien, Joe Judge. Five guys who either are head coaches, want to be a head coach, or have been head coaches before. Mayo and Belichick, the younger, want to be the next Patriots head coach. So does Bill O'Brien. He's already been one before in Houston. Joe Judge has already been one before in New York. And Bill Belichick is chasing Don Shula's record. So there's not room on the New England coaching staff for Josh McDaniels. There just isn't. Not at this point. So, moving on here. He wasn't the only person to switch places um, 
or to have you know their transactional occupation situation happen yesterday. Um, Chase Young was also dealt from the Washington Commanders. Talk about another dysfunctional team with with owner problems. They've got new owner syndrome, is what I heard um, today on the radio. That is, they're in the honeymoon phase. Well, they're dealing Chase Young. Okay, okay, Chase Young's dealt to San Francisco 49ers. I think that's a huge improvement for that defense. That defense was supposed to be the next great thing. They haven't really been that this year. Um, so that's promising for San Francisco. If And they're, they're sputtering right now. They're supposed to be a Super Bowl contender. And at this point, I think it's Philly's conference to lose. Meanwhile, Donovan Peoples-Jones, who I like, gets dealt from Cleveland, who I thought was going to compete, but I guess I was wrong, gets dealt to Detroit. Now, Detroit's going to look to, you know, really threaten in that division because I'm not really in love with Green Bay, no pun intended, and Chicago's sucks. And Minnesota took a big gamble by going and getting Josh Dobbs. I think they think, that their season is still salvageable at four and four. It probably is considering how weak that division in the NFC writ large are. So if I'm Josh Dobbs, I'm happy. I've wanted to be a starting quarterback my whole life. You know, he never really got the opportunity in Pittsburgh or Tennessee until this year in Arizona. So now Dobbs is going to be able to go to Minnesota. And if Jefferson can get back on the field, you got Jordan Addison there and the tight ends, that's a situation where Minnesota could threaten in that division. Um, and it's really going to be Minnesota and Detroit going at it at this point. Now, elsewhere in the NFL, um, there weren't a ton of big moves with players. I think the Jags picked up an offensive lineman, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, maybe, I think it was Philly got a linebacker, but there really wasn't any big moves. Um, and there really usually aren't anyway, but I thought this year with the amount of parity in the league and the amount of like just bad teams, I thought the Patriots might sell off some pieces, but I, they clearly don't want to tank or they don't want to appear as if they're tanking. But at this point, guys, <laughs> I mean, maybe if you win this week and next week and you're four and six heading into your bye. And then you get the Giants after your bye, and the Giants don't look great either. I hate to keep playing the schedule game with the New England Patriots, but I'm going to pull it out anyway. They're 2-6. and six. They've really played the hardest part of their schedule, you would think, based on their record. But the problem is they haven't because they're still going to get the Chargers, the Steelers, the Chiefs, and the Broncos, and then they end with the Bills and Jets. But... If they can if they can win their next three, and I know that's a massive that's a massive ask because that's something I don't think they've done since what the 2021 season maybe maybe last year they did. I can't remember. but they get Washington and the Colts. all right if they can win those games, they're four and six, maybe they beat the Giants and they're five and six at that point at Thanksgiving, if you're five and six and you've got six more games and you can go. Four and two, maybe you beat the Chargers and the Steelers, but you lose to Kansas City and Buffalo, but beat Denver and the Jets. 
best case scenario, you finish nine and eight. That's a massive ask. That is like the, the like unicorn scenario. So, you know, don't go running around saying Will thinks the Pats are going to finish nine and eight. But maybe that's the reason why they didn't sell yesterday. Possibly. You know, I'm, I'm not in the room with Belichick. I don't even think Belichick knows who's in the room anymore at this point in terms of running the team. He he said something in the media this morning about him being notified if there's any moves to be made. I would hope that Belichick, as much as we've given him, uh, you know, discredit for his general managing moves lately, it would have been nice if he was in the room as well. But that's a different story. So anyway, lots of stuff happening. Lots of people getting traded. Um but another big trade outside of outside of the NFL was James Harden going from Philadelphia to the Clippers. Now, look, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm not a big basketball guy. But something that I've learned is the last two years, these NBA superstars have absolutely no direction. All right? Kyrie Irving, all right, goes from the... Cavs wins a championship is integral in that in that championship ends up on the Celtics all right this great trade we're, we're a super team you know Gordon Haywood uh and the young the young Jays all right that never materializes all right then he goes to Brooklyn he's going to team up with Kevin Durant it's going to be amazing they flame out and he barely plays all right now he's in now he's in uh Dallas all right with with uh with Jokic, uh, sorry, not uh, Jokic, uh, Doncic, all right, with Luka. All right, all this, the Mavericks, amazing. I wouldn't be surprised if within 16 months, 18 months, he's on a different team already, closing on his career. That's just Kyrie. You look around, Ben Simmons, same way, two teams. You know, superstar player, two teams. All right. Keep moving around. You got Russell Westbrook and Paul George and Chris Paul. Chris Paul's on the Warriors last I checked. I mean, that could have changed in the last five seconds. So uh, James Harden is just another name in the list of NBA superstars who are constantly jumping around. It's actually surprising that somebody like Carl Anthony Towns or uh, Nikola Jokic or or Luka Doncic or any of these other stars who are of that age, maybe younger than the guys I mentioned. It's surprising that they haven't moved, you know? So anyway, that's just my long way of saying is to me, the James Harden trade is much ado about nothing because that's business as usual in the NBA. It's just business as usual. I mean, no other league has the revolving door of the NBA. It's actually quite impressive when a team does win a championship that uh, has the same roster year in and year out. Even even the Celtics, right? As I mentioned last week, they bring in Drew Holiday and Porzingis. Now these guys aren't superstar levels at the you know at the uh, tier of somebody like Harden or Durant. Um, but you know how can you look at how can you look at this league and walk away with any other conclusion than? you not being surprised when a superstar changes teams. All right. Now, last but not least, speaking of a superstar changing teams, Corey Seager, okay? I And I will admit before I start, Corey Seager, of course, shortstop for the Texas Rangers in Major League Baseball. I will admit before I start, this is not my original idea. I am workshopping an idea 
brought up by somebody on the Dan Patrick show. I forget which one of the assistant hosts it was. They call themselves the Danettes. But as you know, I respect Dan Patrick a ton. All right. So when when Dan Patrick brings this up or one of his um, one of his uh, co-hosts brings this up, you know, they're one of the few sports shows in the country that is nationally syndicated that doesn't just have hot take Olympics for the sake of hot takes. Like they actually workshop their ideas together. So all I'm doing is I'm not taking this as my own original take. I'm just, you know, bringing it to its logical conclusion. All right. So they bring up Corey Seager. All right. For those of you who don't know, as I just mentioned, Corey Seager, pretty young still. I think he's um, looking him up. He's 29. So he's right in the prime of his career. Shortstop, highly touted. His older brother played for the Mariners. Um, Really strong player defensively and offensively. And somebody who is one of those rare players who just kind of has all the things you would check in a baseball player, right? He's athletic. He's fast. He bats left, throws right. He plays the infield. He seems like a good leader. He hits for power, hits for average. And just is somebody who kind of has all the tools that you would look for. He started his career with the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. He actually made his big league debut. It's crazy to me to think about this on Friday, September, um, excuse me, on Thursday, September 3rd, 2015. All right, so he's been in the league for eight years. And his first six years, or five and change, were with the Dodgers. He was a four-time All-Star, including his first full season in 2016 and 2017. There was a little bit of a break in there between 18, 19, and 20, and 21. Of course, 2020, there was no All-Star game. But he has been an all-star since joining the Rangers. And, you know, it could be that during that time, it was really hard to make the all-star game as a shortstop in the National League, considering all the talented ones over there. But then again, um, that's a matter of discussion. But during this time in L.A., he was a World Series uh, champion in 2020, even though that was a Mickey Mouse World Series run. It was still a World Series He was also World Series MVP in 2020 and NLCS MVP in 2020. He was the NL Rookie of the Year in 2016. I forgot to mention that. Same year he he made the All-Star Game for the first time. And he was a Silver Slugger in his first two years in LA. And he's just somebody who has kind of at every turn either been productive or been clutch. And, you know, so far in his career, he's got 170 home runs and a career average of 292. So he's clearly sort of a, I would say, well-rounded hitter. He's not someone who's like, you know, Joey Gallo at the extreme or even Aaron Judge, right? He's going to hit for average and power and 543 career RBI. So... My, what do you, you might be asking, what is my point with Corey Seager? All right, well, my point is, last night he became the first shortstop in the history of Major League Baseball to have three home runs in one World Series. He's also playing for a different team. And if Texas closes it out tonight, 
if you're listening, when you're going to be listening, which is Thursday or later, you know whether that's the case or whether we have a Game 6 or Game 7. But nevertheless, if the Rangers pull out this World Series, as I think they should, given the way, despite their injuries, they've played so far um, in the way that Arizona's sort of reeling with their pitching staff, if that happens, then Corey Seager has a very strong possibility of winning not only one, but now a second World Series MVP with a different team in a four-year span. And that begs the question that was brought up on the Dan Patrick Show, which is, would you rather have a career like Corey Seager's or a career like Mike Trout's? Now, I'm not committing baseball blasphemy, I hope, but with with Seager, look, Trout, he's going to go to Cooperstown. He's an automatic first ballot Hall of Famer. No question about it. He's won AL MVPs. He's won batting titles. He's won basically silver sluggers pretty much every year. Uh, made the all-star game pretty much every year. Um, but the problem with Mike Trout is, and we all know this, it's the biggest game he's played in is the uh, World Baseball Classic Finals. Which, don't get me wrong, I like the World Baseball Classic Finals, but it's not the World Series. And it's not the ALCS. And for Seager, who has been an integral part in his team making the World Series this year and possibly winning it, and if he does win it, I think he should be the uh, World Series MVP, you could argue that you look back at a career like, you know, Corey Seager versus Mike Trout, and look, Trout's played three years longer, so his stats are going to be higher at the moment, and say, maybe I'd, if I was Corey Seager, I'd be proud of my career, and maybe it's better, of course, and maybe it's better than Mike Trout's. But it depends on what you're looking for. Baseball is kind of one of those sports, and Cam Case has said it on this program with me, where the winning is really less of a factor. Um, I agree to an extent, maybe in terms of getting to the Hall of Fame. I think it's sort of the one Hall of Fame that really values stats. Like, look, if he's 29, he's probably going to get to 400 home runs in his career, maybe. But he's not. I don't think he's going to get to 500. He might get to 400. But if he has a near 300 batting average and maybe another World Series, like he's about to do, possibly, then then it's going to be really hard to not let a guy like Corey Seager in the Hall of Fame, right? Like Craig Biggio's in the Hall of Fame because he had amazing stats. He never really won anything to my to my uh, knowledge. I don't think his Astros teams ever won anything. I think he might have played in the 05 World Series against Chicago. Um, let's see here. No, yeah, he, I mean, Craig Biggio, I just hate to pick on him, but he's, you know, he's another, you know, infielder with a, you know, similar career trajectory. He had 3,000 hits, 291 home runs. So, I mean, I don't know how many hits Seager has, but if he gets close to 3,000 hits, but he's gotten a couple World Series and, you know, a batting average around around Biggio's, maybe the same amount of All-Star games by the time it's all said and done, maybe the same amount of Silver Sluggers by the time it's all said and done, considering Seager already has two Silver Sluggers and, and Biggio finished with five, then maybe... 
maybe those World Series victories and MVPs are the uh, are the uh, needle pointing toward him going to Cooperstown. That's a discussion that people are going to have when Seager retires. But I think bringing this workshop point to its natural end is, I'll ask you guys, would you rather have a World Series MVP or win a bunch of AL MVPs and never play beyond, you know, October 1st? You know, I, I like Mike Trout. I think he's clearly, in my adult life, the best baseball player we've had. Uh, you know, people are going to talk about Bryce Harper. People are going to talk about, you know, Shohei and all these other amazing players, Mookie Bats and whatnot. But when it comes to winning, you know, Mookie Bats is another example. Two two titles, couple MVPs of his own, but he's got those World Series. And with Corey Seager, I don't know. Uh, uh, it's way too early to tell, I think. I think Seager still probably has about five or six more really good years in him. And then, you know, he'll probably start to drop off maybe four or five more good years at playing at this level. But, you know, when whenever you become the first thing, first somebody to do something like he is first shortstop at three home runs in the same World Series. You know, those are the kind of things that stick. And, um you know, I, I'd have to agree. I would rather have the career where you won, where you were a key contributor in that winning, and where, yeah, you didn't go to the All-Star game every year, but, you know, whatever. You're playing in Dallas and L.A. Those are huge baseball markets. Um, so, I don't know. Make of that what you want, but I tend to agree with the Danettes there. I think I, think I would much rather have the career that resulted in the winning um, than the stats. I think stats are for losers. When you start quoting stats over titles in any sport, in my opinion, when you minimize someone else's career because they didn't have stats, but they had titles, um, that usually means the person you're arguing for um, either didn't get there or uh, lost when they did. So for that reason, I'd much rather have the career that resulted in winning. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Home Field Advantage. By the time you listen to this, maybe you know if Corey Seager has got his elusive second World Series MVP. But either way, I'd be interested to hear how you feel about that. Um, And I'll have to listen to see if maybe Dan Patrick and his uh, co-host got some feedback on their show when I listen tomorrow. Should that happen. But until next time, please check us out wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't subscribed already and you're listening right now, we'd appreciate it if you did that. You can also subscribe here on YouTube if you're watching below um, and drop a comment with any of the points that I made. Um, And last but not least, tonight is the proverbial battle of the bridge between Lewiston High School and Edward Little High School. So in the wake of the tragedy of last week, wishing both those teams a good luck tonight. Obviously, this is airing after the fact, so we'll know the outcome of the game. But more importantly, the community getting together and rallying around one another is immensely um, heartwarming and is a reason why I love sports. So if you have situations like that in your own in your own community, relish them because they truly are why I think we all love sports. But with that said, the end of the podcast And we hope you enjoyed this as well. And you have been listening to Home Field Adventure.
If you liked this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite provider, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Stitcher. Be sure to also check us out two times a week on those platforms, on Monday and on Thursday. All of the Sportland USA programs are independent, and the opinions expressed on them do not reflect those of any other company, outlet, person, or entity.